Hello you, and welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name is Kai and today, as usual, I'm joined by Catriona and we've got a guest in the studio. It's Nat. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Kai. Yeah, awesome. Excited to have Nat here. Yeah, so <laughs> excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, um, yeah, what are you st- what are you working on, and what are we going to be talking about in today's show? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Uh, yeah, so I'm Nat. Hi, everyone. I'm Tasmanian, born and raised, and I'm here studying my masters at Melbourne Uni because this is where the Tasmanian tiger action is happening and I kind of oh. wanted to get in on that. Um, so yeah, I've, I'm just looking a little bit into kind of animal behavior. That's my thing really. And right. um, some of the kind of behavioral consequences of the existence and extinction of the Tasmanian Very tiger. Very cool. And so, we're yeah. going to be talking a bit more about Tasmanian tiger and hear about it more from Nat and talk about some other predators on today's show. But before that, let's jump into some news. Katriona, what have you got for us? Well, Kai, I actually have a bit of news that leads nicely into into today's theme. Very nice. So, there's a species of ant on Kangaroo Island that literally plays dead to avoid predators. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you ever did did that, like, sort of, like, play dead to avoid school or whatever, but (laughs) (laughs) um, that's what these ants do. So, like many science stories that we've shared here on Radio Silence, this was an accidental discovery. (laughs) Um, So researchers were checking out pygmy possum and bat nest boxes on Kangaroo Island as part of recovery efforts following the devastating 2020 bushfires. And in the nests, they found a colony of ants that appeared to be dead until one moved slightly. And then they realized that the ants, like the entire colony of ants, were only playing dead as a defensive strategy to avoid potential danger. So this is a behavior that the University of South Australian researchers believe is a world first. Um, and this sort of defensive immobility is known kind of already among a few ant species, but it's never been observed for an entire colony before. Um, so... Essentially, the project is the Kangaroo Island Nest Box Project, in which there's 901 boxes for captivity that are, are being monitored, and it's like that recovery mm-hmm. effort for the animals. Um, and often it's only the bat and pygmy possums that are in there, but there are some invertebrates, like particularly insects, that come in there as well because they can kind of fit into the boxes. Yep. Um, and this makes the nest boxes a perfect learning environment for behavioral ecologists who want to learn more about ants and, mm. and other insects as well as, you know, the bats and the pygmy possums. Um, so this particular ant species, Polyrachis femorata, is an arboreal ant, meaning that it lives in trees. Okay. Um, and the 901 boxes in this project are spread across 13 different and very diverse sites, but the Polyrachis femorata ants, they quickly colonize several boxes, island narrow-leaved mallee, so a particular eucalypt woodland. Yep. Um, so... The researchers like, okay, so they, they, they like the woodlands and, and they like these eucalypts, um, but they have been found in a few boxes elsewhere. So perhaps they do like other habitats too. But all the only other thing that we know is that these ants tend to be quite shy and clearly they, <laughs> they are shy because they literally would rather play dead than interact. Um, so, yeah, little less is known about the species' ecology and behaviour, but um, – the researchers have no doubt that other ants kind of have this similar kind of let's feign death 
behavior yeah, okay. um, and particularly in Australia but for now this is this is all we know the only one that we know of Wow yeah so what's your news Kai <laughs> I don't know did you have something to say now sorry yeah I mean I, I just I just think that the stuff with the ants is really cool. The playing dead is a really uncommon behavior, actually, with <laughs> when it comes to like a lot of a lot of animals. So it's really interesting, like, you know, what what kind of threats could be around that would make an entire colony want to play dead? You know mm. what I mean? Like, if I were a ant predator and I just saw a bunch of dead ants, I wouldn't think, oh no, time to go. <laughs> free lunch. Yeah, free, yeah. free lunch. I don't even have to do anything. So like. They must be under some pretty unique circumstances to actually a, have a that. bunch of humans peering into a box. That's that's a that's a threat. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay, so my news is about brain cancer, and some types of brain tumors are actually particularly hard to treat because brains are very delicate organs, mm. and it's kind of hard to go in there and start chopping out tumors mm-hmm. without damaging the brain even more. Um, alternatively, if you want to use radiation therapy, that also has risks. Um, you, know, you don't want to be causing more cancer in the brain than you're actually fixing or causing damage to healthy tissue. Yeah. And the third sort of method that is used for dealing with cancer is chemotherapy, which is where you use different chemicals to disrupt the biological pathways of the tumor development. And it turns out that one of the worst types of brain cancer called glioblastoma very rapidly develops resistance to chemotherapy. Oh, no. It's, like, particularly good at adapting to, you know, all of the different treatments that they use. So it means that if you can't kill off this cancer in the first round of treatment, the cancer that remains is going to be chemotherapy resistant, (sighs) and then there's not much you can actually do about it. Resistance sucks. It sure does. (laughs) So you need a different approach. And researchers from the University of Toronto discovered something and that's that these glioblastoma cells respond to mechanical force. Now, I'm oversimplifying this a bit, but basically, if you squish them, they die. Okay. So, that's pretty good. But now, how do you squish cancer cells inside someone's brain? You know, you can't just go around squishing their brain because that probably doesn't help yeah. either. Plus, there's like a skull there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what they did was they found out that if... What they created some carbon nanotubes, which are little tubes of carbon atoms with, you know, the walls of the tube are only one atom thick. And they filled these tubes with iron particles. And then they attached the nanotubes to antibodies that seek out the cancer cells and then attach themselves to proteins on the outside of the cancer cell. So that makes that these little iron filled nanotubes attach to these cancer cells. And then what they do is they apply a magnetic field. So they get a, a big <laughs> magnet outside the, the skull and, yeah, just put a magnetic field on it and that moves the little iron bits in the nanotubes and squishes the cancer cells and then they die. Uh, you're smiling at me. Just, like, leave it to the physicists to bring <laughs> physics into biology. Yeah, I love it. That's why I picked these news stories because they're so good. It's insanely cool, though. Like, oh, that's yeah. That's fantastic stuff. Um, yeah, so they're only looking at this in mice at the moment. But currently, yeah, they've, they've shown that it works and they're now looking at what's the optimum amount of iron to put inside the nanotubes, what's the best magnetic field, what's the best like, protocol for using the magnetic field because they find if you actually like, apply a rotating field, mm. like that you know, is more effective than just a static field. Yeah, okay. So instead of just squishing, you like squish and twist and <laughs> kill off those cancer cells. And yeah, this could one day be the, the treatment for chemotherapy-resistant tumors. That's amazing. So 
That's pretty cool. We're going to get into some more cool science after our first song. But before that, remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence, and you can catch our past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, we're going to be jumping into our first song, which is Predator and Prey by Griffin Puatu. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus. That was Predator and Prey by Griffin Puatu. And that was perfect for today's theme because we're talking today about mostly predators, a little bit of prey, um, but mostly focusing on predators. And today our guest is Nat, who is looking at one of the apex predators, like the predator of Australia, especially in Tasmania, not that it exists anymore, but the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger. Um, So... Why are we talking about the thylacine if it no longer exists? Well, there's there's a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, the thylacine, Tasmanian tiger, it's still all over our stamps and on the back of coins, coats of arms, bunch of statues in Launceston. People love this thing. Just the other day <laughs> I was talking to, well, I was calling up someone about my project and whether they'd be willing to help out or help provide something. And just like the the passion that they spoke with about the animal, they're not they're not in the science field or anything like that. But it's just uh, the story of the thylacine is something that has like captured, I think, the hearts of a lot of people, and it's something that everyone's interested in, I suppose. Um, but I suppose more more directly related to the science of it is that for a couple of years now. Um, People, uh, well, scientists have been considering the concept of de-extinction, essentially mm. taking an extinct animal and bringing it, bringing it back using sort of cloning and um, gene editing technology. And the thylacine is a perfect candidate for that because it's relatively recently extinct, I suppose. Yeah. So it was extinct in what 1936? 1936. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's not. It's not recent recent but um but we remember we remember it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's not it's not fossil (laughs) yeah you know um we've still got examples of them like taxidermy thylacines and stuff you know yes we do it's yeah Mm. yeah yeah so um that those samples uh you know the taxidermied stuff kind of like preserved specimens and bones and things like that are really what give what give kind of the basis, I think, for the right uh, for for this like the extinction stuff because a lot of a lot of editing needs to be done to fill in gaps in terms of the genome of the animal, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, the basis of it is from all of those things. Okay, so, yeah. so there's enough DNA that people can pull out from whatever samples we have. Yeah, yeah. That we can get a sequence. Yeah, we can we can get a sequence, and it's not the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, uh, but that the kind of gaps, I suppose, can be filled in from, like, similar animals as relatives that are still alive. Mm. So, okay. yeah. What's the most, like, the closest living relative to the thylacine? Closest re- living relative... So the thylacine, it was in its own family of animals called the thylacinidae, okay. named after <laughs> it, obviously. <laughs> um, that is a kind of sister branch of the evolutionary tree which has completely disappeared now mm-hmm. um but it's sister to the uh Dasyuridae, um and that has you know our quolls our tasmanian devils but it also oh. has like little things like the 
done arts and things like that. Mm-hmm. So kind of the mm-hmm. the most of the carnivorous marsupials kind of fall into that group. Mm-hmm. So right. I guess since that split happened such a long time ago, that whole group is the closest relative, I suppose, yeah. of mm-hmm. the thylacine. Um, So it's super exciting that, like, you know, with advances in science, and and as you mentioned, you know, we can get the DNA, we can get a sequence of a thylacine or, like, sort of jigsaw it together, um, and we now have the technology to perhaps bring it back from extinction. Why would we do that? Well, again, one of of the biggest reasons, I think, um, is... Because people like it, people. The, Isn't it the mascot of Cascade, Cascade Light or something? Yes, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is in fact the mascot of Cascade. But um, the the story of the thylacine is like absolutely tragic. There's a whole heap of human error, and I think the guilt, mm. the guilt mm. from that still persists a lot. Mm. And I I think that is a motivating factor. The other motivating factor, I think, is the fact that um, this de-extinction technology um, is fascinating stuff, um, but it the the research for it, um, you know, if you're going to de-extinct something, you would want to be having multiple cracks at it, and you know, you would be wanting to kind of raise an animal f- from like adult or from an embryo to adulthood mm-hmm. essentially if we did that with the mammoth every generation <laughs> every generation would take years and years and years but um because the thylacine is a marsupial um that you know gestates for you know less than a month or sometimes like less than a couple of weeks right um the thylacine is actually the perfect candidate to test this sort of stuff <laughs> because yeah yeah it makes the technology a lot easier to use yeah sorry you just sort of slid over that but like so this is possible for the mammoth as well (laughs) well yeah people are looking into it (laughs) people are looking into it i think i think the the kind of principles of it translate Mm. translate Mm -hmm. over um right as long as as long as you have a um a genome Mm. to put together and then a way of kind of like putting that into an embryo or like editing an embryo such that it can like adopt that genome mm-hmm. and yeah it's possible with i guess anything except dinosaurs right too too long gone That's i what actually I hear, anyway. have no clue <laughs> i have no clue um there, there's a lot of there's a lot of comparisons with jurassic park um, <laughs> yeah, with, this, with this de-extinction technology um which i think i think isn't great for the technology's public image, <laughs> I must admit. Um, well, Jurassic Park's cool. Everyone likes Jurassic everyone, Park. Everyone Nothing likes... goes wrong, right? <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. So I, I think even if the dinosaur stuff was possible, I don't think it is. But if it was, mm. I think from a PR perspective, yeah. probably probably best not touch that for a while. Yeah. I, I think yeah. Um, the half-life of DNA is such that, like, you know, because they went extinct so long ago... I don't think we can get DNA that's salvageable from them. So, phew, no Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. We can have Thylacine Park instead. Exactly. They can yeah. eat everyone. Ta- oh, jeez. Tazzy yeah. Tiger. Um, but what they do interact with is wallabies, right? And that's what you look at. Yes, yes. So, um, what what I'm looking at effectively is um, the predator-prey interactions between um, the thylacine and you know their old prey which Mm -hmm. in this for my project at the moment is wallabies Mm -hmm. um so yeah the there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of 
I guess, debate around whether the thylacine, if it actually got brought back, would be useful at all to a modern ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? Whether mm. or whether you know everything's kind of moved on in a sense. You know, it's been a hundred years. Why do we need it back? Um, so there's, I, I I kind of like saw a lot of those criticisms, and I thought. Um, you know, they make sense. They, they're absolutely valid criticisms. Um, so how do you kind of test for the idea of something, or the idea of an ecosystem moving on, if that makes sense? How do you mm. determine mm. if that's true or not? And so I thought, oh, from a behavioral perspective, um, do the animals down there in Tasmania still still remember, I guess, in a sense? Do they still actually know how to deal with a predator like the thylacine if it was put back there today. Mm. And, you know, if they did, then maybe maybe that's a basis for saying actually it does still... It, it would still be fine down there. It wouldn't cause too much havoc and could belong mm. there, I suppose. Obviously, that's from a behavioural perspective rather than ecological. Mm-hmm. You don't want to kind of jump to conclusions on that basis. Um, but, yeah, effectively, um, the the recognition of a predator mm-hmm. or the and the kind of like built-in responses to be able to avoid the predator is something that can be learned absolutely by animals but like by individual animals but over like many many years of evolution it can become innate something that mm-hmm. animals mm-hmm. are born with you know you see kind of like stories about cuttlefish eggs which you know they have clear clear outsides and the cuttlefish babies not even born yet are able to respond to predators mm-hmm. um so cool. yeah the the theory is effectively that um that kind of innate response can stay well can can stay kind of fresh and stay mm-hmm. like functional even long after the predators disappeared so you know yeah. uh, several generations um even if you know, for example, wallabies have never seen a thylacine before and haven't for nearly a hundred years. Maybe if they saw one today, something kind of some instinct in their genes is going to kick in and think, "I need to get away from that." So, how do you even measure, monitor that? Like, do you go around showing wallabies pictures of thylacines? Like, look, it's a Tassie tiger. What are you going to do? <laughs> <I'm> scared. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's 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 close. Um, what what? we're planning on doing is we're um, planning on getting a bunch of 3D models uh, of the thylacine, like a statue of them effectively. (laughs) Um, And what we're going to do, we're going to go down there with a bunch of kind of camera traps, I Mm -hmm. suppose, and we're going to put those camera traps in the middle of kind of wallaby feeding spots. You know, they all come out at night to like graze on clearings and things like that and you know get them comfortable with those cameras first um watch them for a couple of nights and then you know one night we're just going to put put the thylacine out there and see what happens <laughs> you know uh, it's it might not be elegant but i think i i i think you know with any luck you would be seeing the wallabies you know, looking at that model and thinking, I'm going to stay away from that. Mm. And, you know, the mm-hmm. distance that they keep from the model yep. or the, um, you know, how nervous they look when they're around the model might give an indication of, like, you know, do I remember this? Mm. Do they remember this thing? Would you yeah, expect, yeah. like, 
say, Victorian wallabies that haven't seen the thylacine for even longer or ever. I don't know if thylacines ever lived in mainland Australia, but like, would you expect them to have a different response to a thylacine model or not? Yeah, yeah, you would. So the thylacine went extinct on the mainland about 3,500 years ago. Okay. Um, a while so back. It, a while back, absolutely. Um, so you would expect, um, you would expect because it's been longer, um, that if that response was going to fade, then it would have faded more in the Victorian wallabies mm-hmm. than it would have mm-hmm. in the Tasmanian wallabies. And so we are testing for that as well. We're also going to a Victorian site and doing the same experiment effectively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what we expect is to see those different, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, those those different levels of response. Perhaps the Victorian wallabies will still, like, show a bit, you know, but yeah, we mm. don't know until we see, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best with that research. It sounds fascinating, but also just like, <laughs> here's my statue. <laughs> yes, yeah. The, what do you think? One of the most exciting things is going to be keeping the statue off. <laughs> that's going to be fantastic. A little memento for oh, the for the research. Nice. Um, so that's a really cool sort of idea, bringing back the thylacine. And so, um, yeah, our next song is... Also a throwback, not quite a throwback to 1936, but we've got Bring It All Back by S Club 7. Welcome back to Radio Silence. We're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was Bring It All Back by S Club 7. We are talking about predators today, and Catriona is going to sink her teeth into some predator science. <laughs> oh, the puns are my job, Kai. <laughs> that's all right. Um, the, wor- the world is changing, and that's actually how I wanted to start. So <laughs> um, instead of talking about one specific predator, I thought I'd talk about how environmental changes are impacting predators and consequently the health of entire ecosystems. So predators, um, as you would very well know, Nat, um, shape the way that interconnected food webs work because they prey, like predators prey on on other animals and actually push other animals to avoid specific areas and things like that. Um, So they can also reduce the numbers of of animals or change the behaviour of smaller predators. Um, But there are so many things that are, you know, um, interacting with the environment now, like us, for example, <laughs> um, and you know we're we're impacting how these ecosystems all work. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, or the first impact, is fire. And if you remember back to 2019, the world was yeah. literally on fire. <laughs> um, there were catastrophic fires in the Amazon, the Arctic, California, and then that was sort of the beginning of our 2019-2020 bushfire mm-hmm. um, season. And um, at the end of 2019, Australian ecologists investigated how predators around the whole world are responding to fire. So they looked at studies from 20 different countries, although most of them in North America and Australia, where mm-hmm. a lot of land has been burned, um, and they mostly focused on canine and feline species. So they found that some species seem to benefit from fires, others appear to be a little bit more vulnerable, and some are just, like, indifferent. They don't care. Mm. Um, So if you think about it, some predators can kind of take advantage of charred and more open landscapes Mm. to be able to hunt vulnerable prey, but others, like the opposite happens because they rely on that sort of thick vegetation to yeah, ambush. okay. So that's why, you know, it can be positive for some and negative mm. for, for other predators. Um, so 
looking at some predators, they appear more abundant or they spend more time in recently burnt areas than areas that are kind of like escaping from the fire. So red foxes, for example, um, according to these Australian researchers, seem to um, respond quite positively to fires and become a bit more active in burnt okay. areas. Yeah. Um, another animal that responds positively are raptors, so like black kite, whistling kite, and brown falcon. Mm-hmm. So they've even be ob- been observed in northern Australia. I, th- I find this crazy. They carry burning sticks in their beaks or their talons to like help spread the fire. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they target prey as they flee the fire. Um, so intentional fire spreading by these these raptors has been documented both in indigenous ecolo- ecological knowledge, especially in, yeah. in groups in the Northern Territory, as well as non-indigenous observations. Um, and it's been seen like with solo birds doing it or like group team effort of like, let's spread the fire. <laughs> um, so this is obviously something that Aboriginal rain- rangers in particular have had to factor in when they, they um, think about the risks posed by these raptors when they're doing controlled burns um, because that can make the burns jump across deliberate fire breaks, you know. Um, For other predators, fire is bad news. Um, So following the Californian wildfires, the numbers of several amphibians and reptile species was reduced. Um, So like snakes and toads, they sort of fell in those Mm. burned areas. Um, And likewise, lions avoid recently burned areas because, as I kind of alluded to, they rely on dense vegetation to ambush their prey. Yeah. Um, So researchers were looking at Serengeti National Park in Tanzania, um, and they saw that the lions avoided burned areas, especially in the daytime, despite the fact that, like, all their prey, so, like, herbivores and things, they're just attracted to the burned areas. And it's it's kind of what I was saying, you know, predators are influencing the whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So what they think is happening is that, like, all the small small prey are just like, the lions can't – the lions are staying away, so let's go to the burned areas. And so the lions are just, like, on the outside going, oh, damn. Damn. <laughs> You'd think they wouldn't have that much to eat there, though. Uh, yeah. I guess, I suppose, grass grows back. but Yeah, yeah and yeah. it's kind of like the balance of, oh, do I want to be eaten or do I want to have food? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Australia, however, um, I, I remember hearing, you know, particularly at the time of our massive bushfires, that there were lots of small native prey animals that were, like, sitting ducks in the mm. burn landscape. So, mm. you know, I, I guess it really just depends on, on where. And a lot of ecologists kind of debate about this as well. Like, what is it that really impacts where the predators are, you know, positively or negatively influenced by fire. Mm. Um, and it seems to kind of not just be species-specific but location-specific. So there's just so much to learn there. Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna- oh, I was just going to say, it feels like one of those things that you can never really kind of truly predict until it happens, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of local knowledge is kind of needed. So it's, it's important that we have that, like, kind of guiding us. Um, but the... the the biggest change that I wanted to talk about is urbanization and the fact that as the, our population increases, predators and preys are now living in human-dominated landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, so as humans, as, as we are changing the world, some predators sort of seize that as an opportunity to succeed. Um, so if you think about it, we are creating opportunities for predators. Um, mm. I don't know if you've ever had like chickens in your backyard or whatever, but you know I have friends who have had chickens in their backyard and it's like all these chickens are now together yeah. for a fox to come if yeah. there's a yeah. hole. Um, or, you know, like livestock in general, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, they're sitting ducks if you're not protecting them, um, you know, well enough. Um, and 
uh, particularly in safaris and things like that, a lot of people might be like, oh, yeah, I was so lucky to see, like, you know, a lion jumping on a giraffe while I was in the car. <laughs> but the thing is, like, that's happened so close to the car because of the roads and it's sometimes roads that stop prey from being able to get away. Right. Yeah, because they, like, might slip on the tarmac or, or you know, yeah, whatever. Okay. Like, it's it's sort of the edge of, of a habitat that they, they don't want to cross. Like, they're kind of pushed or backed into the road. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's just yeah. really fascinating to think, oh, my gosh, humans, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're having such an impact. Um, so, yeah, some predators are, like, actually using resources that we provide as tools. Um, but... Another thing is the human shield effect, which is which is what I want to talk about. Um, so the iconic reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park in 1995 um, has had lots of cascading effects down the food chain. So when wolves went back into the national park, the elk population shrank um, and those that sort of remained avoided areas that had wolves because that's like sort of that landscape of fear. Mm-hmm, and then yeah. those changes in the number of elk and their behavior, actually, it, it might not sound great, but it actually allowed aspen and willow trees to recover after decades of being like overconsumed by the elk. Yeah. So it was actually quite beneficial to, yeah. to the environment. Um, and so... Just as a little bit of a, a tangent, um, I just want to point out that with the Eastern Bard Bandicoot here in, in Victoria, mm. um, it's been really difficult to bring it back to mainland Victoria. Um, we've been able to establish it on islands that are fox-free, but, like, mm-hmm. you know, how do you get it on mainland Victoria without, like, expensive to maintain and build, like, um, predator-proof fences? Yeah. Um, so dogs, dogs are the answer because <laughs> landscape of fear, it's a thing. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, like, um, you know, pushing away the feral foxes and cats so that the bandicoots are left alone. So, you know, landscape of fear is actually a, a pretty good thing. So, you know, back to this idea of foxes in particular, um, humans are often intolerant of predators and, and we, we often kill them, like, you know, especially mm. in the US where they, so many people have guns. Um, <laughs> like a lot of people tend to, to kill you know, mm. predators at high rates. And so large predators tend to avoid those areas that are frequented by, by people. And so what's really interesting is that in national parks like Yellowstone, where humans rarely kill wildlife because you, you're really not supposed to be there, definitely, um, some prey species kind of use the popular areas with people as oh. like their little hangout. So that's that's the human shield. Yeah. Like yeah. they hang out in the hiking trails, the campgrounds is sort of like a little refuge. Um, I bet people going on the hiking trails love that. They're like, oh, look, a deer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, you mentioned deer, but um, I'm actually going to talk about now coyotes. Um, <laughs> so, like, they're kind of a smaller predator okay. that's the prey of the wolves, right. if that makes sense. Um, so... The thing is, like, wolves are now not just back in Yellowstone National Park. They're, like, recolonizing areas in West USA and, like, human-populated areas as well. Um, So the the question kind of arises, do the predators have the same influence on ecosystems where humans are the top dogs rather than the wolves? So researchers from the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife attach GPS collars to wolves, cougars, and their prey, so coyotes and bobcats. Yep. Um, and then they, the GPS collars would actually notify the researchers if the coyotes or bobcats would die. So or if, when, when they did die, they could mm. investigate the cause of death. 
So the wolves and cougars avoided areas that are heavily influenced by humans, like busy roads, residential areas, and things like that. Um, but the coyotes, they're like trying to avoid the wolves, so they got closer to the humans. <laughs> um, and then, you know, where they were around humans, it was the humans that were killing the coyotes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so while they weren't, you know, being killed by their predators, humans became the super predators. <laughs> really no winning sometimes. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, while that whole finding might sound like bad news, um, particularly when it's like, oh, but we want to conserve these smaller predators, uh, these results actually have important implications for thinking about balanced ecosystems yep. because you don't want any one species to be too abundant. Like I said with the elk, like, you know, they, they were top mm. dogs before the wolves came back, but they were, like, just decimating the trees. trees. Yeah. So... You know, we've got to think about our role in the ecosystem because we're part of it too. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really cool, fascinating area thinking about this whole interconnected web. It's like a tangled web, food web, literally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that, Katrina. De- delving deep into the web of predator and prey. And here is another song. This is Prey by The Neighbourhood. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus. That was Prey by The Neighbourhood, which just worked really well after my segment, thinking about, like, prey moving into human-dominated neighbourhoods. Um, but that's not what Kai's talking about. Kai's kind of going back into into nature, I believe, um, talking all about bears. Kai? Yes, I am going to be talking about bears because bears are a bit of an apex predator. They're the sort of animal that, you know, strikes fear into the heart of humans <laughs> and... You know, you can see this in a lot of folk tales mm-hmm. are written about bears. Like, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, mm-hmm. they're going to eat you. And yeah. um, like, If you go out to the woods <laughs> today. Yeah, and um, like various different mythologies, like there's lots of bear gods in mm-hmm. different mythologies, like just Greek mythology, which we're very f- more familiar with, but like all sorts of different um, folk tales have bear gods. We see it in the constellations. Again, this is sort of from Greek mythology, but the constellations of Ursa Minor and mm. Ursa Major is the, the small and big bear. And yeah, it's I think it's pretty cool that bears as predators have such this like had such a strong impact onto folk like tales. And it's really cool. Mm. So I'm gonna talk a bit about bears and like first of all, like what is a bear? So bears are like in the family Ursidae, so that oh, hence Ursa, hence Ursa oh. yeah, um, and that does not include koalas, like many people <laughs> often mistake. Um, but I was actually a su- little bit surprised when I was researching this to learn that there are eight ex- like living species of bear. Only eight. Well, I thought it was like actually eight seems like a lot to oh, me because okay. I hadn't thought about any. But if you're like only eight, how many can you name? No. <laughs> I don't know, brown, brown bear, black bear. Polar, polar. polar bear, panda, yes. panda, that's a good one. That was, yeah, that's yeah. A, like an off one, but okay, that's four, four more. Some sort of cave bear, I think, isn't there? Um, so that might be like a subspecies of yeah. bears, but black bear actually is split into two. There's the American and Asian black bears. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the sun bears, which live in Southeast Asia, there's sloth bears that live in India, and there's the short-faced bears that live in South America. Huh. So eight different species of bears. And I like that was interesting to me because I often think of like brown bears, black bears, polar bears, yeah. and pandas, which even though they're bear-like, I sort of didn't think they were in the same family. Mm. Like I thought they might have mm. been a bit different. But no, they're 
they're definitely bears. Um, something else that's interesting about bears is that they, this is going to sound really stupid, but they walk on their feet. <laughs> and to clarify that, in comparison to like cats and dogs that yeah. actually walk on their toes, yeah, yeah, like yeah. if you look at a dog's leg, what we think of it like is its knee joint, which is sort of backwards, is actually its heel if you look at its bone mm. structure. Mm. So, yeah, not a lot of like carnivorous animals, you know, dogs, cats, all of them all walk on their toes, but bears, like humans, walk on their feet, which I thought was pretty interesting. Hmm. Never um, thought about that. Yeah. yeah, so there's actually not that many different animals that do, like great apes, obviously, because they're very similar to humans. Mm. Um, also kangaroos yeah. and a few others. But, yeah, majority of animals that we think about walk on their toes or, like, horses walk on their their hoof. nails, which yeah. is like a oh, – yeah, their hoof is like their fingernails, but yeah. obviously oh. a lot thicker and stronger. Um but that's pretty cool. But most bears, even though they're predators, um, actually eat a variety of different foods. They're mostly omnivorous. Um, though Is the- honey one of those foods? So I just have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe. Like, they're pretty pretty happy to eat just about anything they can find. <laughs> and they'll, like, you know, eat different foods depending on what's available. I don't know if honey is as... As popular as Winnie the Pooh <laughs> might make it think, but I think they do do it though. Okay. Yeah, like yeah, they definitely. I think, like I think they do track it down. But also, like, there's a there's lots of different species of bears, so there's a wide variety of mm. what different bears eat. Mm. Pandas are almost exclusively herbivores. They mm. just eat basically bamboo, which is pretty weird because they're not very well adapted to eating bamboo. Like <laughs> their digestive tract is the same as you know most carnivores, so mm. they're not. Like, they don't have the gut microbes that are good at breaking down plant material to get nutrients out of bamboo. So that's why they just eat a lot of bamboo, and it's it's pretty weird. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, pandas, but, you know, you could have evolved better. <laughs> I can't digest this, so I'll eat more of it. Yeah, and then <laughs> continuously poop it out. Yeah. Another similarity to the koala, I guess, in that <laughs> regard. That is true. That is true. But on the other end of the scale, you've got polar bears which are almost entirely carnivorous because mm. out on the ice there's not much growing at all so mm. you've got to eat other animals that eat plants and you know you've got things like fish and birds and seals mm. and all sorts of different animals so most other bears are somewhere in the middle on that spectrum so they'll eat a combination of meat and fish or insects but then also things like berries roots leaves and yeah also probably honey <laughs> um but as I was saying, most adult bears, like they're sort of at the top of the food chain. They don't have any natural predators. But the one exception, which I thought was pretty cool, is the Siberian tiger. Ooh. Is like the one animal that's known for actually taking on bears. <laughs> and like this tends to like happens in, you know, like Russian Russia and sort of China where these animals live. But the Russian grizzly bears have been known to fight Siberian tigers. <laughs> and they're normally competing over food, mm. which makes sense if you're in, like, Siberia, it's cold. There's not much food going around. But the bears are pretty sneaky. Often they will, like, track down the tiger, not intending to, like, kill the tiger, but just to steal mm. its food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll, <laughs> you like... You do the work for me. <laughs> yeah, but then the tiger's like, no, I'm not, not going to stand for that. And then... <laughs> You know, sometimes it doesn't end very well for the bears. Mm. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, as we've discussed already today, the main threat to bears is humans. <laughs> and bears actually used to be much more common before humans started dominating the landscape. 
and particularly in Western Europe, which I think is pretty interesting. Mm. So as human population grew, that drove the bears out of most of Western Europe. Um, but it's really interesting to look at historical accounts of bears. Like the Romans would used to get bears to fight gladiators mm. and they'd keep them in captivity and then you know, release them into the Colosseum to fight gladiators. And it seems pretty crazy when you know there's not really any bears walking around Rome anymore. Yeah, or like the bear is the mascot of Bern, like the city Bern, mm. and they have like the bears just like in the city. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, traveling buskers would have like a dancing bear yeah. or something which seems very inhumane but that's what was going on <laughs> um but well, something that really like blew my mind was when i found out that there used to be bears in britain <laughs> and this was they went extinct about 1500 years ago so during the early middle ages and they think that like the last examples of bears in britain were actually brought there by romans as, yeah. you know, pets slash yeah. for gladiator games and stuff. And, yeah, they sort of just kept them around for a bit. Um, but that is a lot longer ago than the Tasmanian tiger went mm. extinct. So it's really interesting that there's still people who want to bring bears back to Britain. Oh. Which really, like, pushes the whole, you know, rewilding, bringing back from extinction debate into an interesting direction, I think. Yeah. So it's pretty yeah. crazy. Like, I don't know. I I feel like if if you know Tasmanian tiger only went extinct three thousand five hundred years ago on the mainland, like bears have actually been more recent, more recent in, Britain in Britain than, than that. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's it's pretty interesting. Um, but again, like talking about ecosystems, they want to use the bears to control like the deer population in northern scotland yeah, which has gone out of control since bears and wolves went yeah. extinct in britain so they want to bring both of them back mm-hmm. and Ooh, both at once both That's at once just, that just seems a bit Ooh. oh well i guess if it's all got to be in balance then, <laughs> then maybe you need both at once but this is sort of more of an ecology problem than a yeah. genetics problem like yeah. bringing the thylacine back requires a fair bit of genetics work whereas the species of wolves and bears that used to live in Britain are still very similar, if not the same, as the ones that still exist in Europe. So mm-hmm. they can just use European brown bears and wolves and just reintroduce them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the problem is there's not much habitat going around. They mm. say that there's only about 2% of ancient forest still existing in That's Britain. That's such a sad number. It's such a sad number because there's, you know, so many people there and... Yeah, there's not a lot of habitat for these animals to exist in. And they've already done some pilot studies of like putting bears in these habitats and fencing them off. So it's not like they're in the wild, mm-hmm. but they're actually finding that it's having negative effects on the, the ancient forest because the bears are foraging and they're damaging these really old trees. And, mm. you know, it's all like it's having negative effects because they haven't been there so long. And mm-hmm. now they're in this confined area. And it's just a really, it shows how complex this problem is. Yeah. And you can't just go, oh, we'll put the bears back and everything will be better. And, you know, <laughs> no one's going to complain that a bear's eating their livestock. And uh. so, again, this interplay between humans and animals and everything is is pretty complicated. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. I don't know what what it'd be like if all of a sudden they just had wolves and bears in Britain again. <laughs> well, I'm I'm fairly happy for bears to stay away from me. I was like hiking in in California, and um, the friend I was with was just like, "Oh, I'd love to see a bear." And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Be careful of what you wish for." And then yeah, we had a bear like climb down the tree near us, and we're like, ah, "Walk away, walk away!" Wow. And 
You know, it's really funny with the with the brown bear in America. They do suggest, you know, when you see a brown bear, play dead, just like those ants <laughs> from like, like the, the very beginning. So you know, <laughs> yep, it, it's something that even we could do if it's necessary. I suppose. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. I'll remember that next time I see a bear coming towards me. I'll just play dead. <laughs> I don't know how much I trust it, to be oh, honest. Some people say play dead. Some people say, like, try and scare it off. But in both cases, you probably get eaten. So I don't know. I just take my bet on running, running. to be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, but, yeah, it's such a, like, tangled web with, with our interaction with bears and, you know, well, all predators and what we do mm. with the environment. So um, thanks, Kai. Uh, remember that you can check out every other episode of Radio Silence um, anywhere that you get your podcasts and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. That's all we've got for today talking about prey and predators but we have an excellent song to play us out Apex for the Apex Predator of Bears by Boy and Bear.